Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten, and happy Constitution Day. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody, and the craziness that is COVID and quarantine. Governments are putting more and more pressure on the right to property. Why do we seemingly abandon all the protections of one of our most precious rights in the face of emergencies or even the slightest hint of, an, of, of a crisis? Well, that's our focus today. But first, the second installment of our micro segment, the random question of the episode, Christy Cody. Oh, no. What is the greatest gift you've ever received and from whom gift from spouses or significant others is not accepted? <laughs> well, you take my best one away then. No, I know. <laughs> oh man, that's a tough question. I'd have to say when I was maybe about 10, my brothers actually worked with my dad to make me their own like stuffed animals. They designed them and sewed them and stuffed them with beans. And I kept them for years. I don't think I have them anymore, but they were super cute and I loved them. Like, oh, that, that is adorable. Yes. <laughs> and one of those brothers is like now a United States Marine and like specifically <laughs> tough, but they made me stuffed animals. Back he's a softy at heart. He's a, he's a yeah. soft of those beans inside the, inside the, inside the animal. You got that's, it. <laughs> that's cute. Cody. Oh, that's a good one. How am I supposed to follow that up? Um, I don't know. I, I, so when I started high school, um, I was part of the international baccalaureate program. It was like a pilot program where I was in, in Canada and my grandparents got me my first uh, laptop, which I had to have for school. And it was like this brand new thing, you know, going to high school in whatever year I went to high school and I don't even remember. Um, you know, I didn't own my own computer. It wasn't, that wasn't something we had. So, and you know, my family shared a single computer. So my grandparents getting me a laptop so that I could fully participate in the program. And so that I could, you know, really kind of learn on my own is really what shifted me from, I was always, I was never like a very good, like sit in classroom, listen to the teacher student. And I've just never been like that. Mm -hmm. And having the ability to do my own work and research and discover my own things, I think really did uh, kind of brew this entrepreneurial learning experience for me. So I think that's probably the, the, the best gift that's affected my life through today. That's pretty awesome, man. Wow. I like okay, that. So, I, so I, I definitely don't have nearly the follow-ups to that. I you know something super personal from your Marine brother and something that would inspire the entrepreneurial spirit for a lifetime, man. I don't know if I've got anything <laughs> close to that. My aunt, um, my aunt Ruth, I love her to death. She spoils um, her nephew's unbelievably rotten right she doesn't have kids of her own no husband and she she just she she just invests everything she has into her 
or nephews. Um, my brothers certainly take advantage of that with, you know, jerseys, sports jerseys and tickets and all that. Um, but for my, um, I guess you could say like my after high school trip, my senior trip right, right before college, um, she offered to take me um, to Italy for two weeks. And it was spectacular. The reason that I think I remember it so much was, was because of the, um, the, 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 the group that she found to kind of tour with, right? Because you don't really do these kind of trips solo unless you're like truly backpacking and rugging it through Europe. Mm-hmm. But um, the group we were with was with, uh, was with uh, like a bunch of cardinals and bishops. Cool. And so we got access to a bunch of places that you, you normally <laughs> don't. And wow. one of those places was the Sistine Chapel. And if you've ever been to been uh, been to the Sistine Chapel, usually it's packed. It's really dim. You get maybe five minutes there. You're not allowed to take pictures. We got there after hours. Lights are full blaring on. You now we've got a uh, we, we've got an art historian explaining everything there. We're there for close to an hour. I have like just picture, 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 picture of everything <laughs> on the walls, everything on the ceiling. It was spectacular. Um, just that was just a wonderful memories. If there was anything close to that, it would probably be the whiskey box that my parents got me for graduation from college. It plays a little Irish lullaby as you open it up. It's beautiful. It's exquisite. <laughs> so Italy and whiskey. I don't know which one to pick. So, you know, those, <laughs> those, are, my, those are my favorite gifts from my non, non-spouse. Okay. So that's fun. I like, I, I like to collect these little, little tidbits about you, and I think everyone else does. But... These gifts that we receive, whether it be a whiskey box, a laptop, or stuffed animal from your brother, well, these are ours, and we're, we like them. We appreciate them. They're beautiful. They, they're almost a part of who we are. Um, but apparently during a national crisis or pandemic, eh, your right to keep them doesn't really matter, okay? Today's episode was inspired by a couple of articles that Cody and Christy found. One, one about the CDC, the other about, what was it, the IRS, our, our two favorite alphabet soup agencies. <laughs> Cody, what was, what was in the article that you found? I, I glanced over a little bit. What, uh, help us elucidate us here on, on the details. Yeah, absolutely. And as a disclaimer, I would just like to assure, ensure all that the, the listeners are aware that your cleverly crafted intro question pivoting into property that we all can see through, I had no part in. So I just want them to be aware of Oh, that. don't worry. Your don't teacher worry. segue you, is very much your own teacher segue. Your liability is completely, completely pure. I, I will take it all myself. And I really had a plan down that. I was realizing, oh crap, I have no transition from the random question of the day to our topic. I don't know what I'm going to say. I know exactly what I'm going to say. It's property. Boom. Well, you did, I got you it. You did great because it felt very set up. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be, but you know what? I appreciate the fact that you saw the nice transition. That's okay. just, that's just, those, are, those are the tidbits that you get with us. You get these beautiful transitions from, you know, laptops and whiskey and, and stuffed animals to, you know, CDC preventing evictions. <laughs> Uh, so essentially, that's what the the article talks about is that the CDC issued a it's not an order, it's not a rule according to them. It's like a instructional document because the CDC has authority to do that. He said sarcastically. Um, 
basically what the CDC is doing is previously under the Congressional Cares Act, Congress had put a kind of a moratorium on evictions and uh, trying to say basically individuals that can't make their rent, let's not kick them out while there's a pandemic, you know, agree with that or not, that's up to you. But that was a congressional action, right? That was voted for by your elected representatives, landed on the president's desk. He signed his very large and bold signature upon it and it became a thing. And that expired in at the end of August. So CDC took it upon itself to issue this document that purports to extend that eviction moratorium. Now there's certain criteria you have to meet. Um, I think you have to make less than $100,000. You have to attest that, you know, the reason that you can't make rent is in some way because of COVID or COVID layoff or something to that effect. Um, But essentially what the CDC has done is issued a paper that has no authority to issue that prevents nationwide any form of eviction. It, it overtakes any authority of cities, municipalities, states, of anybody, and it's by a unelected agency that, even in its own order, sorry, not order, document. Instructions. Instructions, whatever we got to call them. Uh, it's fairy tales. We can name them things. <laughs> uh, e- even the statute that it cites doesn't even purport to give it authority to do what it's doing. Like, it's so blatant is I think why it caught so many people off guard, but you know, it's a sensitive topic. People don't want to talk about evictions while there's a a, a global pandemic. And that's when you get into these really weird intersections. And that's what I think interests me so much about this. And why I wanted to talk to you guys about it is, you know, you get this clash of property rights and policy and, modern kind of concerns along with just kind of human nature. And I think it's kind of a really interesting intersection between all of those things. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's deeply interesting, especially because the CDC does refer to it as an order, even though you're absolutely correct that they have no power whatsoever to make an order. The only, I mean, they're just making up their own words. We have every right to make up whatever words we would prefer Um, One random point I find to be odd in it is they claim the reason that they have to do this document is because of COVID, that people getting evicted will spread the coronavirus, perhaps they'd be homeless, perhaps go to a homeless shelter and just spread it wherever they go. But to it, to put that uh, a lot of the limits they put on it, like no more than $99,000 in annual income. I mean, if someone earns more than $99,000 in annual income, are they somehow immune to spreading the coronavirus? Like, sure, those are probably people that are at greater risk of getting evicted, but that in and of itself has no relation to the virus. So that, that pathway you just, that pathway you just described of like, no, if they get evicted, no, they might be homeless. They might go to shelter. That might spread. The tenuous connection like that reminds right. me of USV Lopez. Uh, it reminds me of, oh, we're going to do a nationwide prohibition of you know, guns on school grounds because you know, we have commerce. And if a kid gets accidentally shot, then they're no longer a productive citizen, no longer a productive citizen, no job, no job, no commerce. Commerce clause, hey, we can regulate. It just... Yeah. It, it reeks of just uh, grasping for the straws here. Well, you're precisely right, Stan. I mean, that's what you see. Whenever you see 
whether it be a court or a federal agency or a state government, and uh, our governor, Jared Polk, loves to do this, um, whenever you see them grasping for straws and making all these tenuous connections, it's almost like a hint, hint, here they go, overreaching in their power. They actually don't have the right to make these so-called orders. They actually don't have the right to impose arbitrary limits. And that's, that's another key point. That's why I pointed that out about the income is you see all these arbitrary limits connected. Like who set $99,000 instead of 105,000 or 75,000 or 200,000. I mean, how is that connected to the supposed purpose of preventing the spread of the virus? It's not. Well, I think the last study to come out of the world health organization says that as soon as you make $101,000, you're immediately immune. Um, I think that's the most recent science, so it's probably that. <laughs> the who is such a such a great thing for so many things. And, and so here's the other problem with it too, right? So not only is it wildly outside CDC's purported authority, um, it, it's just also a bad idea. Like we have courts in every state in the nation that are used to dealing with evictions day in and day out. You've got individuals that are there to review the facts and see what's important. I mean, judges across the country are judges for a reason. I mean, I know a lot of people have concerns about individual interpretation, so on and so forth. But, but when you're talking about a strict application of fact, I mean, how in the world does somebody sitting in the CDC in Atlanta know what's you know good for somebody in Portland or in Anchorage or in Detroit? I mean, what if the the facts are egregious and sure the the person that's they're trying to evict might meet the scenarios, but they're being evicted because they tried to set the building on fire. I, I don't know. This is kind of a, a ridiculous example, but there's no reason for the CDC to do this. And a number of states also had and still do have evictions moratoriums and other states let them lapse because they didn't think they needed them anymore. So why does the CDC get to walk in and say, well, look, I know you think you don't need this anymore, but we think you do. So go ahead and use that. But even if the CDC had authority or, you know, forget the CDC. No, let's just look at a state uh, legislative order. Hell, we can even talk about the congressional moratorium. Why should we presume that a, a, a legislative moratorium is better than an agency moratorium. I mean, it's better in the idea that, you know, consent of the governed and yada, 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 yada. But a moratorium on the use of property is a moratorium on the use of property, no matter who it comes from. I, I want to talk about that problem that, you know, if I'm a landlord, I put time, energy, and my risk, I put a crap ton on the line to have this property, property, which I might add, is not easy to deal with. Uh, I, I can't remember the, the exact margins, but profit margins for some landlords is not big. It's, it's, it's more of a risk to, 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 to rent out property than it is just to own it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and is this a matter of, of protecting the vulnerable or is this, or is this something of, of, no, ah, property schmopperty. You don't have it. You, you have it. We have it. No one has it. And that's the problem. So, I mean, I would definitely say that a legislative act is better than an agency action just by virtue of process and, you know, being my aggressive libertarian self process is important. Um, 
So it's better. Doesn't mean it's right. Is that your libertarian that likes the process or is that your constitutionalist? Oh, it's definitely both. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. Anybody that is just outcome driven, like, look, I get outcomes are important. We put certain things into effect to get certain outcomes, but Mm -hmm. if you get an outcome via a flawed process, that's problematic, but fair. And that's the, the problem you see with this is it's this idea that because landlords own property, they're inherently safer from, you know, financial hardship are inherently, you know, the, oh, well, they're going to be fine. They're, they're, you're demonized a little bit these days for, for being a, a landlord. I mean, I'm sure in certain circles in certain cities, that's a swear word, but the bourgeoisie. The, oh, we're going to keep going back to the French revolution and it's just yeah. going to keep driving me up. The, but I tell you the French it. revolution is bad, <laughs> bad, bad juju, but that's it. Right. Like, so you look, people are coming up with examples of these massive property companies, you know, they can bear uh, an extra, you know, a few thousand dollars loss, but that's not what you're necessarily talking about for every massive property company. There's a guy that, or woman who happened to be able to buy a house and converted the, the basement into an apartment. Now, what if that's how they're paying their mortgage? So their tenant refuses to pay and, now they can't evict them and bring in a paying tenant. So now they have to defer their mortgage. And that's one of the arguments, right? They're like, oh, well, they can defer their mortgage. But that doesn't mean that you're like paying your mortgage. That means you're gonna have to pay it later. You're not getting it forgiven. You're gonna have to pay that money later. So it just rolls all of these liabilities to other people. And, and people forget that there's individuals out there that are landlords that might own you know, a four apartment unit that are struggling to make ends meet. What if they just bought it that's their retirement. I mean, I know a fair number of people who invest their retirement accounts into lease properties. Mm. So it, it's this idea that like, just because they're a landlord, they're inherently going to be fine and we should care. Like we only need to care about tenants and that's kind of in the spirit of this. And that's, what's so scary is it doesn't let, it doesn't recognize the landlord's property rights, which are going to affect their lives just as much as anything else. Yeah, well, and I think to expand a little bit on what you're saying, because I, I entirely agree, I think it is almost setting up this class distinction that the socialists and far left wants to establish in America. This is yet another way to do it, to basically divide the classes and say, here, landlords over here, tenants over here. Um, and, and even to say, if and they don't make this distinction, it would be better than currently is they basically say any landlord thrown into the same class to your point cody whether you own you know multiple skyrise apartments or whether you just own one house you're renting out they throw them all into one category but even if they were to, to divide them up and say okay well like your mom and pop shop who has like one little house is fine but the big companies like the corporations owning apartments like bam we're gonna get rid of their property rights which is this is, that's what this leads to. It's on the path to getting rid of property rights and it, to erode them little by little, like emergencies and pandemics give us, um, give the government an open door to start eroding rights that they eventually want to take away. And I think that's the scary thing to me is you see that's precisely what the socialists, the socialist movement in America wants to do is create these classes and say anyone who owns things and has more than these other people is somehow evil and wrong and must be punished and to say that the government can freehandedly erode their property rights goes to a socialist view of government instead of our constitutional natural right that you inherently have the right to own property it doesn't matter how many you own it doesn't matter 
Um, if you have one or if you have a hundred, it's your property and, and it's moving from that natural right to saying, well, if you have more than someone else, it's your duty and we're going to command you to take care of them instead of letting you take care of them of your own free will, which is certainly the American way or the Absolutely. old American way. One of the, <laughs> the American spirit. Yeah. yeah, there you go. One of the ways that I, I, I think I like to think about something like this, because this is, this is super controversial, right? You know, you, you don't, you don't want to see people thrown out. You want to see people evicted. That's never good. And especially if they, if they have, you don't want to see people evicted, especially because they can't work because the government told them they can't work. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like, well, government has a responsibility to protect people from getting evicted because they created this economic problem in the first place. But I think one way to kind of think about this problem, similarly related in, in Fort Collins, where I live, um, we have a citywide ordinance. It's been on the books. I don't know how long called U plus two. Have any of you ever heard something like this? I don't think so. It's an occupancy ordinance. You, plus two unrelated individuals may live within the same residence. No more. Now for like a family, right? You know, uh, a family, you can, your family can be as big as, uh, as needed, but you know, if you want to have like a nanny or foreign exchange student, that's the only other person. So, you know, when, when my then fiance and I, um, uh, moved to Fort Collins, we could only find one other roommate. Now, three people in a, in a, no, whatever sort of apartment, fine. But if we wanted to add a fourth or potentially even a fifth person to drive down cost, we couldn't, right? The, the, the city does not permit more than a, like that, that U plus two, more than three unrelated individuals in a single residence. And, and I don't know why I've heard various reasons that know is to maintain, um, uh, to minimize the, the effect of the college and, and college kids in town. I've heard it has origins, uh, racist origins of preventing immigrants from being able just to just to pile up into a single residency, whatever the reason being. It comes down to this. Those who own the residence do not get to determine how to use their property. And, but instead of being an eviction question, it's an occupancy question. Hey, I've got four willing customers willing to pay for this two or three bedroom apartment. I would like to bring them on in. And you know what? Good for me. I've got four people who are willing to pay. Good for the four people who are willing to pay. Lower cost overall for rent. We couldn't. You're not allowed to. The government has put a moratorium on occupancy. So How dare you try to decide what's best for yourself? How dare I <laughs> conceive of my own well-being? Yeah, they have these in uh, California as well. And I've heard a couple different reasons. I, I've never heard it called U plus two. That's actually a way better way to, but the occupancy limits. Mm -hmm. um, they Sometimes they've tried to justify it, or at least I've heard, haven't done a whole ton of research people, uh, under like public health. So they're like saying, oh, well, if you cram eight people into a one bedroom apartment, that's detrimental pu to public health. I don't know if there were a global pandemic, it would be easy for y'all to spread it. Uh, but <laughs> so that's one of them. The other side though, that you really do hear, especially in California, right? Is you have such a strong immigrant and migrant worker community that a lot of the occupancy limit things were designed to look at those quote slumlord mm -hmm. style places. Um, and, and what that was is people trying to take advantage of other people allegedly 
and didn't have a high amount of pay, would just shove as many people into a house as humanly possible in order to, to have some form of residence while they were there working. Um, you know, like everything, government creates a problem and then makes it worse by passing more laws just to make it more difficult. But yeah, um, uh, yeah I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the idea that a, a land, like your property owner can't decide what's best for them and the government needs to step in is, it's offensive. I mean, these regulations aren't promoting anything other than more government control and more government power of the program. Yep. And then magically they'll come in and throw some form of data at you and be like, Oh, look, flu is down by 15% since we passed the U plus two law. Therefore you're welcome people. We're making you healthier. You know, it's always that it's always something like that. And I just, I, people need to think about this idea of when it's going to be them, right? It's easy right now. If you're the tenant, it's mm -hmm. easier to be like, look, and, and I get it, man. I, people that are, are in a bad situation because they can't work because the government's telling them because they, they can't work because they have to stop serving beer at 11 because it's COVID. I, <laughs> I'm running out of like, I can't even come up with sarcastic explanations anymore. That's how far just, out of far afield I am. Like a, an absurd joke. Yeah, but you know, right. like I, I, I can feel for the people, but you got to think about it when it's your you're in the next position. Like, what's the next part of? Oh, well, you you went out and bought a hundred dollars in canned goods. What's even if you're on food stamps? Let's say you used your food stamps and just bought canned goods. Well, there's this other person, your neighbor. They don't have any, so we're going to take half of yours. Right. I mean, like it, it, that's what it comes down to. It, it's super simple, but for some reason we get lost in this idea of the haves and the have nots. Yeah. Instead of thinking it as we all have things and those are our things and we should get to decide how we want to use our things. When the administration was contemplating or used the, um, what's it called? The, the defense production act mm -hmm. the fact that the government can just tell a company you're going to make this for us because you will. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, everyone said, yes, good. We want we want for ammo. It's so impossible to buy ammo right now. Can't they like make <laughs> them make ammo? Can't we use it for what it was no intended bad. for? <laughs> it just, it, it, I think this comes down to a question. And Christy, I want to hear from your article too, because and I think this is a good segue. I think people just have a, a, a supreme misunderstanding of what property is. And then they have a misunderstanding of what the right to property is. And I think this is most ridiculously but clearly exemplified in the IRS example that you showed us. Um, what, how, how much did he owe the IRS? And how much did oh. they take? Yeah, so, and incidentally, it was the state of Michigan. There's like, I oh, think 14 course. states that do this. And I, I'm... Don't quote me. I should definitely do better research, but I think the state of Colorado is actually one of them. And so he owed eight dollars and forty-one cents. This in man tax. in Michigan. Yeah, this man in Michigan. And so it was sort of it's sort of the idea where he had rental properties, so he did not live at this address. He lived at a different address, um, with a number of these examples because this happened to more than just this one guy. Um, the county even had the person's residential address on file, but they never like merged their documents to be like, oh, we have the same person with multiple addresses. Mail keeps getting sent back to us at this address, but not at this one. That must be where he lives. I mean, they didn't even do basic like data upkeep. And so anyway, um, in a short period of time, he didn't pay the $8.41 in taxes he owed. 
I believe he paid the tax bill, but he underpaid it because he just didn't get a certain notice. And so the county uh, seized his property and state law allowed them to do this. They seized his property. They sold it at a sale, similar to a foreclosure sale, but a little structured a little differently. So it kind of at an auction though, way under the value of the house. So, and not only did they do that, they also kept all of the proceeds from the sale, not only the 841 that he owed, but every single penny went to them. So he entirely lost his property, every investment he had ever made into it, um, any potential for future earnings, all because the government said, well, huh, you didn't fully pay your tax bill under this arbitrary deadline and our arbitrary standards for getting it to you. Uh, So it went to court and the court, unfortunately, ruled that it was okay for the county to seize his property. But what was wrong was that they kept all of the money. They should have only been able to keep $8.41 plus any fees and costs for them to process this and everything else should have been given to him. Uh, yeah, that's that's definitely what was wrong, for sure. Yes, definitely the only problem there. I see there. nothing else. <laughs> so the courts, I mean, even in that example, the courts are by no means going far enough to recognize what property rights really are and questioning how in the world does a county government or a state government or any kind of government have the right to say, you are the owner of this property, but oh, as government, our right supersedes yours. And if you owe us even a small, tiny fraction of what your property is worth, we have this overarching supreme right to come in and take it from you. And one of the reasons I think that's so anti-American is because our founders recognize that private property was the very foundation of freedom and of prosperity without without that natural right to own and use and dispose of your private property as you see fit you don't have the opportunity to prosper or to continue to be free so our courts unfortunately don't have great standards i'm sure you're aware of this cody no solid standards when it comes to property rights it's one of the in my view most confusing areas with the least Um, conclusive tests when you're comparing a citizen's right to property with the government's right to take some of that property from them. Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's insane. I, this idea that by underpaying a tax bill, they can just come in and seize everything and then decide what to do with it. And that, I mean, send them a late due notice. Like it's easy. Like, I, that's it's insane that they can just walk in and say, and just completely, you know, using the heavy hand of government, impose their force to collect eight dollars. I mean, that's ridiculous. The sheer disrespect for property, I think, is most clearly understood. And wait for it. What's it called? Civil forfeiture. Civil asset yeah. forfeiture. Civil, now, yeah, Cody, I'll give you exactly two minutes talk about civil asset forfeiture because oh, no. I know you can go for three hours on this topic. All right. What is I'm going to talk about forfeiture and why is it a monstrosity? Civil asset forfeiture is this idea that any property that is potentially or could be used in the commission of a crime. Not proven, um, just possibly. Could be used, is suspected of use in the commission of a crime, can be seized and then kept by either the agency that seized it or the state that seized it. And oftentimes, even if eventually in court it's proven that there was no crime being committed the agency still retains the profits it's very difficult to get them back so for example i mean there's a thousand out there but you know there's instances of people traveling with large amounts of cash and that's suspicious they think you're a drug runner so they grab the cash they arrest you turns out 
you pulled everything out of your savings account. A lot of times it's, it's, you know, uh, immigrants, they might've pulled everything out of their accounts that they had in their country of origin and are bringing them into the U S government seizes all of them. They find out, Oh no, it was just your cash, but still we're going to go ahead and keep that because you know, we appropriately seized that. So there are instances of the property getting returned. Those are few and far between. Um, but this, it's this perverse incentive because the alleged idea was that, well, if you're a drug dealer and you make $2 million selling drugs, we're not going to give the money back to you once we arrest you. And we're not going to go out and distribute it to everybody that bought drugs from you and give them refunds because they were also all criminals. So that's this idea. The problem is with a lot of these civil asset forfeiture laws, the agency that seizes it gets to keep the money. Mm. So anything that you see that a law enforcement agency has or different agencies have that are off budget are all bought with civil asset forfeiture funds. So a lot of those like APD things that you see, like basically where a a city owns a tank, like you have like some, you know, suburb outside of like a major city and they're like, well, yeah, well we got a tank. Uh, That's civil asset forfeiture money because they can buy those extra things off budget. So basically what they're saying is just because they think you're a criminal or they think that you're doing something untoward, then they're going to take the property they're going to use it. And then afterwards they might give it back if they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really complicated issue. And like the Institute for justice is one of the organizations that really works on reforming civil asset forfeiture around the States. Um, When I worked at the legislature for a Republican legislator, that was one of the things we worked on. It was a bipartisan bill actually to reform some of the laws on that in Colorado definitely did not go far enough. <laughs> um, the guy I worked for wanted it to go much farther, but Colorado collects like about a million dollars a year uh, in civil asset forfeiture from selling people's stuff. And one of the biggest problems with Colorado's current law and in a lot of states is that no conviction is required. Um, there's higher standards based on the reform that was implemented, I think it would have been about three years ago. And like more reporting, they tried to get more transparency. So like people could look up and be like, oh, what are the police grabbing from people and what are they keeping? Um, and I think it was limited to 50% of the profits now can stay with the agency instead of Oh, 100%. there we go. But, Problem solved. How gracious. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. With, whether we're talking about court cases in Michigan and homes or whether you're talking about money and guns in someone's car because they're suspected but not convicted of a crime. It's this idea that the government has an overarching superseding right to your property that is a greater right on property that you bought and you sought and you own and you use. This, I was about to ask, why is it so difficult to re- to reform civil asset forfeiture laws? You know, there, there could be a lot of you no know, things, you no know, lobbying pressure from certain agency departments and all that but that's all that's all gloss over the really 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 fundamental issue i think we have because i I see it with my students i see it with some of my colleagues no one understands that property isn't just your physical crap (laughs) property is i'm gonna sound like the crazy libertarian it's the extension of your being right you know, when we were talking about the natural rights, life, liberty, property, mm-hmm. there's a reason that they're all tied into into each other. Yeah. You know, we exist, we have the right to life, but life itself is not enough to, con, you know, to sustain it. So we have to do things. Well, you need the right to liberty in order to do things. And when you do things, you create stuff to support your life. There's your property. 
The property isn't just essential to your life, though, as essential as it is. It's that property is the result of your actions that originate from your mind. It is the quintessential human activity to create, right? There are not a lot of other animals do this. We create. And when we create, we are pouring ourselves, so to speak, into what we create. They, they are a part of us. You know, if I buy something, I still bought it from something that I did, right? You know, when, when I bought um, this mouse that I have here on my desk, I had to do something. I had to create something in order to acquire the finances to purchase it. So, yes, I didn't create this mouse, but this mouse is nevertheless the result of my creative energies. And no one understands that property isn't just money and things. Property is you. You are your own property. And no one seems to understand that if the government has this, what, how would you say, Christy, superseding right? Yeah. <laughs> if it has a superseding right to your property, it has a superseding right to you as a being. And that terrifies me. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a very compelling way to, to put it. Like, hey, if I ever get elected to office, I'll like try and appoint you like philosopher in chief of Colorado or something. You do a great job like driving this point home to adults, not only kids. Philosopher in chief is the greatest position <laughs> title I have ever heard. And I, yeah, I like it. <laughs> I formally second the motion. Thank you. Thank you. Man alive. <laughs> oh, where, where, here's the other thing too, right? So in that vein, Everybody thinks that, so first, property is tangible. Mm-hmm. And if you have it, you own, you, you've got your property, you're good to go. What they don't think of is impairments on property. So this is this idea that you have to do certain things. There are certain limitations on how many people can live in your property. There are only certain things you can do with your property. If they think you're doing bad things, they get to take it. That's not a full property right. Property isn't this kind of, you know, divisible pie where if government takes a slice out of it, you still have a pie. Yeah. That's, that's not how this works. If government starts putting impediments on your property and starts removing things that you can do with your property, what it's doing is it's asserting an ownership interest in your property, right? So if we own something together, let's say 50% more equal, we're going to have to decide well, if I want to do X and you want to do Y, we better figure that out. Mm-hmm. But what you have here is you've got this superior right um, where government is saying like, oh, we own 20% of your property and we're definitely going to tell you what to do with the other 80. Isn't and that the definition what, of fascism? I mean, I, didn't, I don't think they used pies when they were talking about fascism, <laughs> but... <laughs> I think you're you're pretty close. There's there's not a whole ton of pie once you start getting into fascism. Uh, But yeah, and that's the problem. And I think, you know, I've been very sarcastic this episode already. So I'll try to be a little bit more endearing. Bring on the pie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think people really should think of that when they think of property of, you know, sit down, kind of take a look around and, and give an assessment, right? I mean, it's not just your TV that's sitting in front of you. It's not just your you know, your laptop. It's also, you know, that book that you started in 10th grade and, and started to put on paper and you're, you're thinking it through. It's the, the poems that you wrote to your, 
you know, the love of your life when you're 10 years old that are living in a notebook in your parents' basement. It's, uh, it's the random guitar riff that you, you know, played when you picked up a guitar for the first time and, and screwed around. It's those things. Those are all part of you. Those are all part of your property. And, and kind of having this conception of, you know, your effect on the world is important and means something and you should be able to control that. Just as you should be able to control your poems, you should be able to control your apartment building. You should be able to control your car so it doesn't get seized because they think you're running drugs. It's Property isn't evil. And I think that we're getting to a stage where people are afraid that by owning things, it makes them a bad person because somebody else doesn't own that then. But property isn't limited like that. I mean, the idea that it's evil that the, you know, Beatles composed or wrote so many songs because other people could have written those songs would never enter into somebody's mind. But the idea that somebody owns or has a billion dollars and that's a billion dollars that somebody else can't have. Or owns the vaccine. Or owns the vaccine. So that's, I, I really think that people should kind of take a different conception of property and think about how much value is added when we talk about things that aren't necessarily tangible and then try to apply those to things that are tangible. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And I think the connection that both of you have made of property as an extension of yourself, not only of what you create with your mind, but also what you decide with your mind. Like so many people, they have plans mm-hmm. for whether it's their invention that they've made with words or with actual products and materials, or whether it's, I have bought this house at this point in my life because I'm gonna pay it off and then leave it to my kids. Or once I reach this milestone with this property, I'm going to go and start my own business. Like people have their plans, which is connected to their liberty and their right to pursue happiness. All these things that are in our foundational documents that if you don't see property as an integral foundational um, natural right, you lose I mean, really the American dream, I know that sounds a little dramatic, but, but I think we do. That's what we're in danger of losing if we don't help people get back to the original conception of property as an extension of yourself and as the means to go out and create the American dream and to pursue liberty and happiness in your life. Because without that right to own things, without the government telling you what to do with them at every single turn and then being able to change it on you and flip it on you at will, um, you really don't have as much freedom as you think you do. I want to uh, ask a little clarifying question because I, I, I think I think it's important for for the non-libertarians out there who are right on kind of the edge, who are right on the fence, who are like, "All right, I hear you guys, but you're sounding like quacks." So let's. <laughs> well, I'm not the, a libertarian, if so that helps. Like. That's true. That's <laughs> true. You are a liberty lover, in which we can all agree <laughs> we are. We are that. Is the right to property the right to have something? Or is the right to property a right to have it something not taken away? What is the right to property? So we've talked about what property is. What is the right to it? Is it the right to have something or to not have it taken away? It's both. It's, it's the right to have. It's the right to not have it taken away. It's the right to exclude. It's the right to uh, dispose of as you see fit. It's the right to use how so you if I have a right to have something. Do, do, do I require that you give it to me? No, not at all. So what is it? Was it when you say the right to have, what does that, what does that mean? And this is what I'm saying, right? Because a lot of people seem like I have a right to 
healthcare, or I have a right to the vaccine or whatever. I have a right to this. No, if I have a right to property, if I have a right to life, you have, you must give it to me. So what, what does it mean to have as a right? So for property, it's you need to acquire uh, appropriately or legally. Now that's going to get real nuancy, right? Because people mm-hmm. are going to say certain government programs, so on and so forth. Um, you know, in, in modern society where we live today, that means that you can't acquire property by force. It's not a legitimate means of acquiring property today. You know, I can't go to my neighbor's house and just assert dominance and conquer it. And then, can't pillage. No. I, I mean, I could try and fly a flag above it and assert that it's mine, but well, it's not the world you. that we live in today. <laughs> so you need to to get property is kind of I think where you were going Stanton is you need to acquire it appropriately. You need to acquire it based on the agreement of the person disposing of it. Mm-hmm. Well, you have the right to go get it under the same standards that anyone else has to abide by. Yes. So any available property, like the government can't say, well, you can go get it, but you can't like the standards have to create e- equality of opportunity where anyone who can meet those standards which sort of fits within the legal requirements that you're talking about, Cody, can go get that property. And then once it's yours, I think that's less debatable. Once it's yours, you should be able to dispose of it, to use Mm -hmm. it, to sell it, to do whatever you plan to do with it, you know, and presuming your use doesn't hurt other people, like that would be, you know, my qualification. I think it fits within the rights that no one, it's the principle of my rights, end or may be limited where yours begin when two fundamental rights are in conflict whole lot of conversation around that we can have another time my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins exactly exactly so what applies to property too but barring that you have the right to do your plans with your property once you've acquired it i think in the future we can have a discussion on how certain uses of property affect other properties you know like pollution i think that's a really I think it's, I don't think we have time for like this episode, but I think it'd be really interesting to talk about how, how pollution affects other people's property and the, the tort that could happen there. Mm-hmm. But there's one, one last comment that I want to make that I think, I want to hear what you guys think. I used to be that kind of person that said, those who find tax havens, right? You know, the, the Cayman Islands or whatever, who, who stuff all of their wealth there. No, you know, you used to think of them as the bad guy. I certainly did for the longest time. no, it's not fair that they're able to get away with this and I'm, and I can't, right. You know, they have their wealth allows them to escape their obligations and, you know, they're, they're, they're tax evaders. It's always got a negative feeling, but the more and more that I think about property in the way that we've been discussing today, the more and more I realize they're not the villain, they're the heroes. They're the good guys. They're the ones that found out how to protect what is theirs. And, yet they're the bad guys in everyone else's eyes because it's unfair that they can access that kind of offshore resource and the rest of us can't. And yeah, it does feel bad. No, it used to be this idea. It's a patriotic duty to pay your taxes. Is it still a patriotic duty to pay your taxes or is it a human right that I get to keep what's mine and take your grubby little uh, bureaucratic hands off? Like, What's, I think this, I, I want to use this to kind of wrap it up. Like how, how should we think about tax evaders in terms of this idea of property? That's, I mean, that's a very interesting question. I think, I sort of think that when you choose to live in a country, 
you're also choosing to abide by the laws of that country. And it's sort of a perhaps unspoken, but a known agreement that if you live in the United States of America, or you live in a particular state, you are going to pay the taxes that you owe. Um, I think there's a million reforms that should happen in the tax code, um, probably 2 million, but in a lot of the state tax codes, but people can move to a different state if they don't want to pay income tax There's or property tax. There's states that don't require that of you. So there's some choice that people have. And I think I'd relate the same like tax evasion where you're actually breaking tax law or taking um, exceptions that really don't apply to you, I, I think are wrong, um, kind of without question, in my opinion. Uh, go live somewhere else if you don't want to be subject to those laws. That's your freedom. <laughs> but if it's truly an exception that you can take, that's where I think people go wrong is they condemn these people for taking exceptions to the tax code that actually do apply to them and they have every right to take it because that is the tax code. And if you can find a way to pay lower taxes and still fit within the law that you've agreed to abide by, um, people shouldn't condemn you because you've found a smart way to pay lower taxes. So I'm actually going to challenge both of you because I think you're both working within the parameters of, and maybe that's because you guys are actual humans that live in society and are changing things. And I'm just sitting here like theorizing on the, in the corner, like hey, Rothbard. Patrick <laughs> okay, Henry Rothbard, hold to, on a sec. <laughs> Patrick Henry refusing to the, go to the con uh, constitutional convention. Cause I smell you know, a rat. Exactly. That's me now. Uh, I, I think there's two reforms for the tax code. I think burn it. And then instruct them <laughs> to fit it on one page. Ooh. Everything you need to say about tax code on one eight and a half by eleven using twelve point font. Okay. Now, now I can like I do, that. Can I do like single space? Nope. Zero well, spacing. Sure. sure. <laughs> you know, Ninth Circuit makes me do things in fourteen point font, so I can take up. But that's the problem. Isn't this idea of okay? These guys are the heroes because they figured out the way to avoid the unjust system, or Okay, don't break the system. The problem is that the system is unjust. The taxation system that we have today is ridiculous. It should not be so complicated. It should not have insane exceptions for these like really odd, nuanced, weird problems. I mean, there's a number of ways that very intelligent economists talk about it all the time of being very simple to reform the tax code. The problem is nobody's going to burn it to the ground and make them fit it on one page. So in the truest conception of property, right? I mean, there's this idea, if you believe that there should be a government that has military courts and sole use of force, okay, let's, let's use that as our kind of baseline for me, at least we'll use that as a baseline. You're going to pay into those things because that's part of your, you know, benefit of them. If you want to go, back to like pay to use, that's just a different conversation. I'm gonna set the terms there. Then you should be able to pay for those things. But the problem is government is doing too much. So there's too many things that we have to pay for. And then they make it so complicated on who has to pay what, you know, and, and you have to tell them how much you owe them. And if you get it wrong, then you're liable. Like, right, the, 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 the I, terrible deal that Congress made with uh, all the, the tax men, what, what was that back in the 80s? Ugh. Yeah. Uh, that all that nonsense where we have to tell the government I mean, how much we owe. Imagine walking into a grocery store, grabbing your groceries, going up to the cashier and they go, okay, how much do you owe? <laughs> and if you get it wrong, we're going to charge you more. Yeah. So you better get it right. It's crazy. So I think that the problem here is 
this system is unnecessarily, and to, to bring it back, is depriving people of property without appropriate, uh, w- without the appropriate measure of the government. I mean, it's not an appropriate function of the government to take money from individuals in order to fund all these ridiculous programs. And, and I think that's the biggest problem. And we need to just reform that and fix the root cause. That's awesome. Well, you can be, like Stan can be philosopher in chief. You can be reformer in chief. Oh no, that sounds terrible. We'll have something going. <laughs> reformer in chief sounds, sounds very much like Caesar. And that is not who I want to be associated with. <laughs> what? Dictator? It's uh, no, a little bit. No, but yeah, <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm philosopher way better. You could be Can I be like honorary Cato of the country. I just like <laughs> stand by my principles and just sit in the corner and nobody listens to me until I have to like do something. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, write the one page document. And- All right, I can do that. There but you go. before we go, I know we're wrapping up, but here's one thing that I was thinking of. And because I haven't called back to any of our earlier episodes, I obviously have to do a callback to episode one. <laughs> and, and I was thinking about this, right? So, so the framers chose the words life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Mm. The famous Lockean construction is life, liberty, and property. Do you think that we would be in a different place today if the Declaration of Independence said life, liberty, and property as opposed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? I would prefer it. Just on a, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what difference it would make, but I've always preferred property instead of pursuit of happiness because I kind of equate, I'm probably wrong, but I equate liberty more with the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's how you go get your happiness is you have liberty to go pursue and live your life as you choose, smart or not smart, <laughs> the choices mm-hmm. people make. Um, so I do think property would add a more solid basis for the courts to analyze and our Congress and government to get involved in protecting. But I mean, the 14th Amendment mentions property, though. So yet we do have it in the Constitution. And I don't know the, how much difference it's made. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. It seems like liberty is always focused on but not property. I don't know. Um, I think I, I got a similar question a couple of years ago from one of my gov students. And um, it's good to know that I'm asking the same questions as high schoolers, you know, you're or or that they're asking <laughs> the same questions that uh, high-level lawyers are asking. No, look at Oh, it. you're too kind. There we go. I right. do my best. I like that. <laughs> and I've always, and, I, and I've grappled with this question too, is what the hell does a pursuit of happiness mean? Because it certainly doesn't guarantee happiness, right? It guarantees the pursuit of happiness. Right. And I've always tried to explain this by using the example of, you know, consider a monk that's made a vow of poverty. He's not pursuing property, but he is pursuing his idea of happiness. And, you know, that should be protected. But the more I've thought about this and the more I've thought about property is that the monk who pursues, you know, a life of poverty in the pursuit of some uh, holy cause or uh, the, the, the mogul who seeks to rule a corporate empire are at the same root pursuing the same thing. They're both pursuing happiness and property. Because like I said, you are your own property. Your, your body, your mind, if you want to consider that your soul belongs to you. Now, sometimes, you know, if you're super religious, you might believe that God owns your soul. And, but we're going to put that to the side. We're just talking about government <laughs> and law, right? 
they're both pursuing what is in their own self-interest in different ways, very radically different ways, but it's the same thing. The pursuit of your happiness and the pursuit of property are quintessentially, fundamentally the same thing. And so I don't know if it makes a big difference. I, I think Chrissy's right. You know, we have the word property in the constitution and it sure doesn't seem to do a hell of a lot of good, but in terms of, I don't know, culturally, you know, I think the pursuit of happiness has a weightier measure to it than say just property, so to speak. All right. I like it. It makes sense to me. I, I, I think I probably agree. Um, I don't know that it makes much difference at the end of the day, especially because we really don't draw a lot of analogs to the declaration anyway, mm -hmm. modernly. The only thing that I think I wonder if it might change is that maybe the word property in and of itself isn't important in that conception, but the overt mm. nod to Locke, I wonder if that changes, you know, conceptions in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s that re retain through today, that maybe when the, and here's a topic for another day, when the, you know, progressive institutions get started in the late 1800s after they come over from Germany, you know, maybe they have a tougher time convincing this idea of like Wilsonian constitutionalism versus like Lockean property. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, maybe it's more important or maybe it's wholly irrelevant and <laughs> nothing. No, changes. I think, I, I think that's a compelling argument. I think, uh, you know, words matter. I 100% agree. And the overt yeah. use of the word property might have had a greater impact on, on who we are. I, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe when the French are looking to our revolution, they said, ah, they said, pursuit of happiness. Then, uh, well, that is for us, equality and fraternity. Yeah, that is what we shall pursue. I don't know. Maybe if we said property, they said, what is this property? Uh, do we need that? I think we need that. The Americans needed that. So we will put it into, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we save the French revolution. If we use property, you know what? We'll run with that theory. We save the French revolution. If our revolution used the word property, that's my new favorite alternative history take <laughs> like one word just uh, inspires the French to get rid of this idea of like brotherhood that made no sense in theirs and then ch completely change. And France is also a natural rights utopia today and this alternative world. I love it. This is my Fun new with it. I'm down. I, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've had one heck of a show. I've really enjoyed this one. I always like talking about properties. One of my favorite things ever. I don't know what's coming next. Um, as we mentioned earlier, we are uh, releasing this uh, episode around uh, Constitution Day. Um, but we've had four other episodes before us. Uh, we're just deciding that we're going to make our final push to say, hey, we're here. We're big. We're ready to talk about liberty. Um, so in the coming weeks, as, as you hear from us, we're going to be putting out social media posts. We're going to be asking you to follow us, to share with your friends. Um, so find us, find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter and, uh, share the living daylights because while the show is self-evident for God, we certainly don't want to be forgotten by you. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time. <laughs>